Back in 1960, James Rogers was condemned to death. He was executed before a firing squad in Nevada. But before the order to fire was given, they asked if he had one last request. And he said, why, yes, I'd like a bulletproof vest. (laughs) And uh, many people have thought, wouldn't it be nice if we could always be bulletproof? Wouldn't it be nice if we could live forever? Of course, uh, those of us who are older, who have had our aches and our pains, and we've experienced the misery of the world out there, we're not quite so sure we want to live forever, not in these old bodies anyway. And yet, when we think about death, our lives can be a bundle of contradictions. Uh, There are times when we are foolhardy and very unnecessarily uh, risk uh, death uh, in the, the activities that we engage in, and that there's other times where we are scared to death of dying. <clears throat> there are times when people are searching for the elixir of life, whether it's vitamins or some other kind of a therapy that will enable us to live longer, and yet some of those same people who want to live longer later on when they're going through incredible pain uh, want euthanasia. Uh, or they want to commit suicide. And I hope by the end of today's sermon, you're going to have the information that you need to be able to minister to those people, to give them uh, the biblical balance on life and death. And this whole passage is preoccupied with death, every verse. And death is a constant reality in our sin-cursed world. According to the yearbook from last year, the CIA uh, fact book, an average of 56.2 million people die every year. 56.2 million people being ushered into eternity. That's 154,000 a day, almost 13,000 an hour, 214 every minute, or three and a half dying every second. I don't believe Facebook's uh, statistics that three Facebook users die every second. Uh, I think they're trying to inflate their numbers. Uh, but three and a half people being ushered before God every second is really an astounding figure to, to think about. Now, there were some encouraging statistics in the CIA fact book. Um, uh, if you could believe statistics, uh, living in the Antarctic, uh, you're going to live forever. I didn't see anybody dying uh, over there. <laughs> So some encouraging stuff. But anyway, with uh, this, let's uh, dive into chapter 31 of 1 Samuel. Verse 1 gives a general overview of the first six verses, uh, promoting death and fleeing from death. And many times the same people can engage in both of those behaviors uh, depending upon the day. And in this case, it is the Philistines who are the producers of death. It's the Israelites who are unsuccessfully trying to flee from death. Verse 1 says, Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Gilbo, uh, excuse me, the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Now just for context, he's backing up in time four days. Okay, and the writers frequently do this. They'll talk about one character and move along in history. Then they'll back up and they'll talk about the second character. And so this is uh, going uh, back to the day that David is dismissed Uh, from the army of the Philistines, or chapter 28, uh, when uh, Saul sees all of these Philistine armies that are gathered around him, and he goes to the uh, spiritist in Endor, and he tries to find out what his future is. 
And Samuel comes and he prophesies that he and his sons are going to die the next day. Well, the next day is this chapter right here uh, that Samuel uh, was uh, talking about. And uh, it says that Saul was dreadfully afraid after he knew, knows he's going to die the next day. Now, Saul didn't always go into battle uh, afraid, and uh, people can sometimes... Uh, be unbelievably courageous in facing death and other times have sweaty palms fear concerning uh, death. And it just depends on the day and the circumstances. And cultures can both try to avoid death and be pursuing death all at the same time. I want you to take a look at verse 10 where uh, we see what happened at the culmination of this battle. It says, Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths, and they fastened his body to the wall of Beth Shan. Now, why would they even want a body to be hanging on a wall of one of their towns? That just seems really gross. And why would they take the armor of Saul and put it into the temple of the goddess of love? Well, actually, she was the goddess of love and war. Uh, of uh, both of those, and some people might think those really don't fit together, but the more you study culture, the more you realize that those two are linked over and over again, and I believe those two are at the heart of what's going on in American culture today. Many scholars have said that if you, do, if you can understand a culture's views on sex and war, you can understand, or at least take a pretty good guess at where that culture is at on its Romans 1 slide into oblivion. Okay, that's, uh, those are almost like indicators or gauges that you can measure them by. Now, when I went to Covenant College, uh, there was a guest speaker that came and gave a series of lectures, a guy by the name of Dr. James uh, Hurley, and uh, he gave a number of lectures on these two things, measuring ancient cultures and modern cultures on their views of sex and wars. Just a fascinating, fascinating talk. He showed how rebellion against God always manifests itself in those two areas, and they're almost always linked together. And so really, you could use what Ashtoreth symbolizes She's the goddess of sex and war. You could use those two areas as a gauge of culture. And researchers have shown that Philistia was very occupied with what they called love. It was really a hypersexualized uh, culture. And uh, war, just like America, is preoccupied with sex and war. Uh, the plural in verse 10 for Ashtoreths, there was only one goddess, but this was a temple just filled with images, statues, and some of the smaller things of this naked goddess Ashtoreth. She was always presented as naked because she was the goddess of sex. And so we've got a blending of sex and war in the Philistines' worship. Now, I'm not going to get into this in detail, but do a little research on the video games that young people play in America, and you will find uh, scantily clad women involved with men in gruesome battles where there's uh, decapitations and other carnage, and the kids eat it up. They eat up both aspects of this, and it's not by accident. Satan does everything he can to destroy with his counterfeit what God has established uh, in his word. And when I say always, uh, I mean this is universal. You can look at uh, virtually every culture in ancient history, and uh, you will find that there is a goddess who links those two, sex and war, together. And let me just give you some examples. 
The Egyptians had Hathor, sometimes called Isis. The Sumerians had Inanna. The Babylonians had Ishtar. The Syrians had Ashtart. The Greeks had Aphrodite. The Romans had Venus. The Norse had Freya. And you can look at India and China and so many other places of the world and you'll find a similar goddess. And again, always naked. It's the humanist attempt at presenting their own versions of life, liberty, love, and happiness. But without God, it always leads to a culture of death. And the video games, I believe, are just symptomatic of our degenerate cultures glorying in both sex and war. At least think about it. Now, verse 1 uh, presents the Philistines as the aggressors. They were expanding their territory. And I want to give a little bit of background that uh, would have been obvious to the or- original readers, may not be quite so obvious to us, but the Philistines were a, a war-loving uh, people uh, from the island of Crete. And if you want to read about them in the history books, they were the Sea Peoples. Um, uh, apparently there was a connection to the people in Homer's Iliad, uh, even though there's debate um, uh, about that in the, uh, in, in the uh, scholarly papers. But I think Iliad gives you a little bit of a picture. They had thrown off the Hittites. They came sweeping down the, the Mediterranean coast, and uh, they had established a beachhead in Palestine in the five Palestinian cities uh, down there. Uh, but they wanted all of Palestine. They're never content with what they, what they had been able to capture. And so in wave after wave of sea and land assaults, they attacked Syria, Palestine, and even Egypt. Egypt was scared to death of these guys. And everywhere they went, they plundered and killed. But it would be a mistake if you try to think of these people as uncivilized uh, barbarians. I think you'll miss the whole application if you think that way. Uh, There are people who use the term Philistine to mean, oh, this is a boorish, uncivilized, uncultured, uncouth uh, individual. And a number of scholars have demonstrated that's a total misuse of the term uh, Philistine. They were anything but uncivilized. In fact, uh, some people have said that they probably resemble uh, uh, American uh, culture a whole lot more than they than Israel, at least uh, godly Israel, resembles uh, America. But they were Mycenaean in their background, probably considered themselves to be far more cultured than Israel. And by cultured, I mean sophisticated in the arts, entertainment, philosophy, administration, and all of the comforts of life. In fact, for sure, they were far more sophisticated than Israel was in architecture, technology, and instruments of, of warfare. In fact, uh, uh, there's a couple of commentaries that are just shaking their head and wondering strategically why in the world would Saul have engaged the Philistines in the plains, plains in front of Gilboa? Because these Philistines, they had chariots. I mean, they were far more sophisticated in their weaponry than Israel. And it didn't seem like a a very good... And nobody knows why, uh, why Saul did this. But I mentioned their culture, entertainment, philosophy, and technology to point out you don't have to be primitive in order to embrace a culture of death. You just have to have drifted far from the God of the Bible in the areas of life and death, or as the Philistines would word it, love and war. Ashtoreth's version of hypersexualized love led to an ongoing culture of death just as their battles for liberty 
led to a culture of death. And let me explain what I mean by that. Free sex is not love. It leads to death through STDs, abortion, infanticide, AIDS, declining population growth, abuse of children, short-term thinking. But so did their constant interventionism in other countries. Now, archaeology doesn't tell us exactly what their excuse was for their expansionism, but constant warfare in the name of liberty does not automatically produce liberty. And here's the scary thing. America is just as war-loving as the Philistines were. Americans worship the goddess of love and war. And how many women are sterile because of it? And how many abortions have happened because of it? And how much carnage has happened because of the wars that America has engaged in? It's really astronomical. Now, under point B, I simply state the obvious that countless people suffered under the Philistine expansionist policies. Why were the Philistines even up at Mount Gilboa? I mean, that's way out of their territory. Well, the reason was that Israel controlled the main trade route for all of the nations. It was a lucrative trade route, and the Philistines wanted it. This was uh, just basically a war uh, for economic reasons. Why has America complained about the tyranny of Iraq, but they have not complained at all down through the years about the tyranny in Sudan that went on much longer and has been much, much more severe than anything under Saddam Hussein. I think there's something more than liberty that is driving these wars. If it was really liberty, they might have been thinking about liberating southern Sudan. Why has America gone after the tyranny of Iran, but not after the tyranny of Saudi Arabia? I mean, forgive me if I am utterly skeptical that America is trying to export liberty to other nations. Saudi Arabia is the second most repressive nation in the world. They will automatically kill a Christian if he is found there. And yet we are friends. They were best friends with Saudi Arabia. Now, we've been in a constant series of interventionist wars for all of my lifetime, all of my parents' lifetime, and all of my grandparents' lifetime, and it has produced the opposite of liberty and life. You just look at the one of the numerous uh, countries that we have liberated, take Iraq, and you'll see that it really has not produced liberty. 4,000 U.S. soldiers lost their lives there, and for what? Christians are living a much harder life, much more persecuted after our war than they were under Saddam Hussein. Okay, and America is no safer for it. Over a million Iraqi civilians have died in the civil unrest after our war, and so the Iraqis are not safer for it. But even before that, now one university did an extended study and and demonstrated that as a result of Clinton's embargo on Iraq, uh, over 250,000 children under the age of five died of uh, malnutrition, died of, of starvation as a direct result of an embargo. And I tend to be skeptical of university studies, but I have a Reconstructionist uh, friend who is in Iraq. He saw this firsthand himself under the uh, Clinton regime. And in country after country, we have produced death and not liberty. But the same is true of the love side of the equation. The sexual revolution of the 60s, which of course was under the banner of love, right? 
it not only produced one and a quarter million abortions every year on average, but it was the, the death of the American Christian culture as a whole. And so this is Ashtoreth, the goddess of sex and war. It's not just communism that is capable of producing a culture of death. Any country that rejects the lordship of Christ over that country is by definition seeking death according to the Scripture. Now, this is not to say that all death is wrong. God authorizes defensive wars. He authorizes self-defense. He authorizes dying in the cause of saving your loved ones, dying in the cause of protecting your country. Uh, John 15, verse 13 says, Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. God commanded Israel to be involved in love and war. And so on the surface, it could seem laughable. It could seem like hypocrisy to be trying to pit a big difference between a Christian culture and uh, the pagan culture there. And yet, when that love and war is motivated by God's grace and, by, and it's defined by God's law, it does produce life and liberty, whereas uh, the exact opposite result uh, comes from, from paganism. I want you to take a look at verse 2, which shows the heroism of Saul's sons. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons, and the Philistines killed Jonathan, Abinadab, and Malkishua, Saul's sons. Now commentators point out the way this verse and the next verse is worded, and you link this with uh, the, uh, the, the, the description of the battle in 2 Samuel chapter 1, and David's tribute to, to, to Jonathan in that chapter. It shows the heroism of these sons of Saul who were forming a rear guard while Saul was able to escape. So he, or they try, hoped he would escape. So he's higher up on the mountain. They're down, forming a rear guard and actually laying down their lives uh, for King Saul. They're killed first because they're closer to the enemy. And David made it clear in the first chapter of the next book that Jonathan went down fighting. Here's how he words it. David said, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. He was not running. He knew he was going to die that day, but he was taking out as many Philistines on the way down as he possibly could. And so those sons of Saul stand as a tribute to heroism, valor, and courage in war. You don't have to agree with everything that a ruler stands for in order to fight righteously in unrighteous wars. And yes, you heard me right. Uh, we can fight righteously in unrighteous wars. And people say, you know, how could you do that? Surely you've got to boycott the army. But I want you to think about it this way. When John the Baptist talked to the Roman soldiers who came to him, did he make them quit their army? He did not. In fact, he told them how to function within their army in a way that would be consistent with Christian values uh, he told them how to live within a culture of death. And then you've got this centurion who came to Jesus and wanted his, his uh, servant to be uh, healed. He loved his servant. And Jesus not only healed his servant, but he said that he didn't find such great faith anywhere in Israel as he found in that centurion. Did he make him quit the, the Roman army? No. 
And then you've got Cornelius, the centurion that was converted under Peter's ministry. And you've got a centurion uh, under Paul's ministry. And you find this in the early church. There were many people in the Roman army who served valiantly and righteously. Now, there did come times when they were given orders that these soldiers had to disobey, and they were summarily executed, and yet they faithfully served God within a culture of death. Jonathan did not agree with all of his father's actions, and yet he fought, and he fought hard in his dying moments. Faith can enable you to outdo yourself in battle just as Jonathan did. And even though I have not agreed with all of America's wars, I can still give tribute to the heroes of battle from America's past wars. I think it was absolutely shameful the way America's soldiers were treated when they came back from Vietnam. Absolutely shameful. Now, I didn't agree with the war in Vietnam. But soldiers don't always have a say as to where they're going to be serving. And those men gave the best of their lives, and they deserve the kind of praise and tribute that David gave to both Jonathan and to Saul in the next chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so God's grace enables us to be a centurion, to be a soldier, to be a Daniel, a Shadrach, a Meshach, and a Abednego, who sometimes are pretty uncomfortable in the way we have to serve, and yet who can serve faithfully within a culture of death. And so this gives a balance to what I said earlier in, chapter, in, in point number one. Um, God does not call us to separate from the world. He calls us to be different from the world and our attitudes to life and death. And Jonathan was certainly different from Saul, even in the way in which he died. And so even when you know you're going to die, you can face death realistically and you can die well like Jonathan did. But despite the valiant efforts of his sons to protect him, Saul was shot as well. Take a look at verse 3. The battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him and he was severely wounded by the archers. Now, even though the night before Saul was greatly afraid, uh, he seemed to have enough faith that he was able to pull together in order to fight valiantly in this battle, Uh, be somewhat courageous. And according to David's account in the next chapter, uh, he fought valiantly at least part of this battle, maybe not toward the end, but at least in part of this. It says, the sword of Saul did not return empty. I love that phrase. It did not return empty. In other words, he did go down, but he took a lot of Philistines with him on that day. Now, those two snapshots also emphasize the fact that death comes to everybody, comes to the good, the bad, the ugly, comes to everyone. And uh, there is no avoiding death, so we might as well face death with courage and with faith. While most of us do not have to stand in the uh, harm's way, you know, with bullets and bombs going off, every one of us can die just as easily as those soldiers died. I mean, God uh, could allow a person to lose consciousness for his car to jump the curb and kill you on a sidewalk at any time. He can take you out any time that he wants to. Uh, through, through cancer and through, you know, a gas leak in your house and a big explosion going off. There's so many ways in which God could cause death to happen to us. And so even though we need to try to avoid death like the Israelites did who fled in verse 1, when it's our appointed time to go, we cannot miss our appointment. Now, of course, He's not going to take us till our purpose on earth is done. We are invincible until it is our purpose to, uh, to die in God's, in God's eyes. 
But we should always have a perspective that we're ready to die. Every one of you should say, yeah, if God were to take my life today, I'd be ready to die. Uh, Joel Moorcraft, uh, he kept telling people, you know, you need to be thinking about your funeral long before you get old. You need to be preparing for death. But point three gives yet another balance. Even though we should be prepared for death, even though we should be bold in facing death like Jonathan was, we should not welcome death. Okay, and here's where Saul made one last error of judgment in his life. He welcomed death. And I think part of the reason was he was not used to being driven by Scripture. If you look at verses 4 through 5, you'll see two ways in which people tend to welcome a death. And the first one is in verse 4 where Saul asked his armor-bearer to kill him. He's asking for a mercy killing, much like Kevorkian uh, performed on numerous people. Then Saul said to his armor-bearer, draw your sword and thrust me through with it. What Saul was requesting was basically euthanasia, putting him out of his misery through death. Euthanasia was considered by the Bible to be both immoral and illegal. Throughout most of Israel's history, it was illegal. Throughout most of Western civilization's history, uh, it has been illegal. Saul did not get this idea from the law of God. He got it from the Philistines, who had a long history of quote-unquote heroic uh, suicides and heroic uh, euthanasias, uh, so to speak, in the battles that, that you read about uh, in their background. And because there are so many calls for legalizing euthanasia today, and because so many Christians are confused on this subject, I think this is an important topic for us to think about. Let me first of all define euthanasia. Euthanasia is the act or practice of killing hopelessly sick or injured individuals in a relatively painless way for reasons of mercy. Now let me make a distinction. It is sometimes permissible to allow a person to die unnaturally, in other words, to not spend you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars in heroic uh, efforts to prolong a person's life for a few more weeks where it's going to be inevitable that he's going to die anyway. So it's permissible to allow a person to naturally die, but the Bible does not allow the active killing of a person. That's what's forbidden in the Scripture, the active medical killing of a person. Now, I've put into your outlines uh, five reasons why euthanasia is unbiblical. First of all, conservative scholars have point out, pointed out that every single example of suicide and of euthanasia in the Bible, um, example of it, has been treated in a context of disobedience. And you might say, well, this passage is, must be an exception, because I don't see anything in this passage that said it was wrong. And uh, why in the world would you want Saul to be captured by these Philistines? Now, I'm going to be in a moment sharing with you a hint in this passage itself that this is not an exception. But I do want you to turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 1. And I want to share with you some history here that occurs between verses 4 and 5 of our chapter. It's the same guy who wrote 1 Samuel, wrote 2 Samuel. Now he's expanding a little bit about what went on in this death. So we're going to start reading at verse 5. So David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and Jonathan, his son, are dead? Then the young man who told him said, as I happened by chance to be on Mount Gilboa, there was Saul leaning on a spear, and indeed the chariots and horsemen followed hard after him. 
And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me, and I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? So I answered him, I am an Amalekite. He said to me again, Please stand over me and kill me, for anguish has come upon me, but my life still remains in me. So I stood over him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And by fallen, I think he's referring to Saul having fallen on his own sword, just like in the picture in your, in, your, in your bulletins there. So he witnessed Saul leaning on his spear and then falling on his sword. And uh, then he, after Saul asks him to, finishes him off. Anyway, he continues, And I took the crown that was on his head and the bracelet that was on his arm and have brought them here to my Lord. So what had happened was that Saul's attempted suicide was botched. He fell on his sword. He tried to kill himself. It didn't work. And as he's lying there with a sword in his chest, he sees this Amalekite, and he didn't have the strength or the energy to be able to pull the sword out and try to kill himself again. So he asks this Amalekite if he would finish off the job. So this is a clear-cut case of euthanasia, or at least a claim to have... Uh, committed euthanasia. And I want you to notice now David's response in verses 14 through 15. So David said to him, How was it you were not afraid to put forth your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go near and execute him. And he struck him so that he died. So David said to him, Your blood is on your own head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. So he treated the euthanasia as murder, despite the fact that Saul had invited it. And every other example of euthanasia in the Bible is in the context of disobedience. And you'll have to study the other passages on your own. Now, the second proof comes from uh, the way the Ten Commandments are further defined in the law of God. God just gives a blanket statement in the Sixth Commandment Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not kill. But then he goes on in the case law to say what is and what is not considered to be a murder. And he gives exceptions, very carefully defined exceptions. And those exceptions are lawful warfare, uh, the execution of a murderer or some other criminal that God has declared to be worthy of death, or killing somebody in self-defense. But those are the only exceptions that the case law gives. And so by definition, since euthanasia is not given as an exception, it is murder. It's just simple logic. Uh, Otherwise, you know, if you just take the Sixth Commandment by itself, it rules out all killing. It rules out self-defense. It rules out wars. And then God gives some exceptions. So logic says... If there's no exception to the sixth commandment given for euthanasia, by definition, it's a violation of the sixth commandment. Okay, the third argument is that God's positive command to preserve life, and that's really implied in the sixth commandment, applies equally to self as to the lives of others. For example, Matthew 22, 39 says, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So you're called to love yourself and your neighbor And Ephesians 5.28 commands husbands to love their wives as their own bodies. Now, the implication of this is if something would be inappropriate to do to yourself, it should be inappropriate for others. If it is inappropriate for others, it should be inappropriate for yourself. 
The fourth argument is countering one of the main arguments by euthanasia advocates, and they say that pain and suffering diminishes the value of life, or at least the quality of life, and therefore justifies the removing of life. And Scripture says absolutely not. It says the exact opposite. And I've given some Scriptures you can study on your own that shows that even with the greatest of pain and suffering, that God still values your life, and you need to value your life. In fact, you need to realize that God is using this pain to drive you closer to God. And then the last argument is that God says that our lives are not our own. And that means that we don't have the authority to do what we want with our bodies. It doesn't belong to us. We're stewards of our bodies. We have to ask God's permission. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 20, For you were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And another scripture says that you were not your own. Now back to our text, there are two reasons that Saul gave for requesting a mercy killing. The first reason, he didn't want a dishonorable death lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through. He's saying basically, I'd rather die by the hands of an Israelite than to die by the hands of an uncircumcised man, despite the fact God had prophesied the evening before he was going to die by the hands of an uncircumcised man. But he's trying to, he's trying to avoid that. For Saul, being killed by a Philistine was an unacceptable way of dying. He wanted to choose the way that he would die. Okay, now ironically, uh, I don't know, Rodney will tell me if I'm using ironically the correct uh, way here, but in the next chapter, uh, he dies an even worse. He's willing to have an Amalekite kill him, and that Amalekite was either a mercenary who was fighting in the Philistine army or one of the servants of those uh, Philistines. But anyway, uh, God's will could not be thwarted. Now, he found it unacceptable to die that way. Some people find it unacceptable to die a slow death by cancer. Other people say, hey, the quality of my life is too low, and I want to have, uh, be able to uh, legally have an assisted suicide. So this was the case with Baby Doe, who was starved to death because she was a Down's syndrome baby. This was the case with Terry Schiavo, a brain-damaged woman who was euthanized despite being able to respond to the love of those around her. Most of the arguments that you see for euthanasia appeal to what we find acceptable or what we want. But once you open the door to what is acceptable in terms of quality of life, there really is no stopping a Hitlerian plan from emerging? Because you need to ask questions like this. Well, would it be okay to kill a person who was in a coma? Would it be okay to kill a paralyzed person? What about a mentally handicapped person? What about a person who just has a little bit lower IQ than I think that they should have? Uh, what about a person who's feeling depressed today? Maybe he won't be depressed tomorrow, but today he wants suicide because he's really, really depressed, right? What about an unwanted baby? You know, the abortionists have tried to phrase the whole argument as a, 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 as a mercy killing. Every baby, a wanted baby. Why would you want this baby to grow up in misery of not being wanted? But why stop there? Hitler didn't. Gypsies were unwanted. Jews became unwanted. Maybe at some point, Christians will be unwanted. And so there is no logical stopping point for euthanasia once you give up the principle that God alone can authorize the taking of life. And let me tell you something, 
America is fast becoming a culture of death as the legalizing of euthanasia, euthanasia is gaining momentum. Now, what about euthanasia of a person in order to avoid his going through torture? Saul's second reason for requesting euthanasia was, lest they abuse me. If you look at the margin, it says, lest they torture me. And they were quite capable of torturing their prisoners. And with Saul, I mean, he probably would have died before they got much information, but they might have tried to torture him to extract some information out of him. And there are other forms of torture that we would all like to avoid. You know, it's a torture to go through pancreatic cancer. And there's other forms of torture uh, that uh, are out there. I, I, I doubt any of you would want to go through that. I know I wouldn't want to go through uh, the, the kind of pain and, and the smelly, slow death that some people have had to go through. But you see, what we want to do or don't want to do is not the biblical justification uh, for death. Not at all. God did not give an exception. He did not say, don't kill anybody unless they beg you to. Now, of course, active killing is quite different from allowing death to take its natural course while caring for a patient and keeping him comfortable. The Bible does allow for that. The Bible would say that you can administer pain-killing drugs, even if those drugs might, over time, shorten that person's life. But here's the, the, the difference. The point of those drugs is not to kill the person. The point of those drugs is to make that person's pain less severe, to give them some comfort, some dignity as you're caring for them in, in, in a nursing kind of a situation. <clears throat> and believe it or not, this issue of torture or pain has been used over and over again in America to justify euthanasia against the will of the person or the patient who is having the pain. A friend of mine was euthanized against her will in Omaha, uh, some years ago because she had painful arthritis and the family didn't want her to suffer. Now, she claimed she had quality of life uh, because she wanted to live as long as she could to see her family converted, but they euthanized her. And so quality of life, honorable death, avoiding torture are not good reasons for euthanasia. And I believe that was the primary reason why the armor-bearer refused. Uh, verse 4 goes on to say, but his armor-bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. What was he afraid of? He was not afraid of death. He very quickly killed himself after he saw that Saul was dead. What was he afraid of? He was afraid, the text is quite clear, of killing Saul. Why? I believe he was afraid of killing Saul because he knows that God's law said that this is not allowable. Whether it's regicide or other kinds of murder, he no doubt was wanting to prepare his heart for God, and he did not want to have murder uh, on his hands. And America would do well if it had as healthy a fear of euthanasia as that man had. God told Noah, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. Genesis 9, verse 6. And we already saw a hint of that, didn't we, with uh, Nabal, uh, Nabal's wife Abigail nursed him, took care of him. He was comatose for 10 days. Talk about a miserable man. But no, she feared God, she reverenced God and took care of him. So euthanasia is clearly ruled out. What about suicide? If others can't take your life, can you take your own life? Now, unfortunately, neither this man nor Saul considered suicide to be wrong. 
The text says, Therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. And when his armor-bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. Now, to die fighting is not a sin. But to die for the reasons given in this text is clearly a sin. Now, let me clarify that it's not always sin. I've already read for you uh, John chapter 15, verse 13, where Jesus said, Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. Now, that's not a selfish uh, suicide. That is a suicide driven by grace and love. So even though Jesus laid down his life, it was not a sinful suicide. He was laying down his life for his friends. Uh, Soldiers who have jumped on grenades to take the impact of it on their bodies and save their bodies, they're heroes. They're not sinners. Okay, So I'm I'm, I'm trying to parse this out uh, carefully. But nowhere does God authorize suicide in order to have a more honorable death. That's not driven by grace. That is driven by pride. Now what about to avoid torture? That's a little bit more tricky reason because it could indeed be a laying down of your life for your friend's sake. For example, if a spy or a soldier had a bunch of information that could jeopardize the lives of hundreds of people, I would think it would be okay to swallow a cyanide pill. Uh, I would think in that situation you are indeed laying down your life uh, for, your, for your friends, and that could be honorable. It could be driven by grace and love, but simply to avoid the pain would not be a good reason. That would be a selfish reason. And the reason Saul gave in Second Samuel was simply because he wanted the agony to end. Uh, I, don't, I think it would have not taken that long. I doubt the, the, the Philistines would have had him long enough to gain information from him. But it was pain he was concerned about. I like the the response one woman who was struggling with a disablingly painful disease, but she was asked if she wished to live or die. And she said, I have no wish about the matter, but to leave it in the hands of God. Now, I'm sure I've not answered every question that you guys might have on this subject. There's just a ton of material uh, to cover. Uh, For example, Job's wife encouraged her husband, basically, to commit suicide. And Job 2, verse 9, and his response to her is very instructive. In verse 10, but he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God, and shall we not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So do not get your ideas about euthanasia and suicide from our culture of death. Get it from the Scriptures. Too many Christians blindly accept the advice of their doctor, who's not thinking scripturally all the time, or from their lawyer, and they, you know, get a living will or something like that. There's a much better way of preparing for for death with a lawyer, and I can share some of that with you. Uh, Let me just give you one story. I had had a friend in... um, Lincoln, who called me up and he said, Phil, I really, really need your advice. We got an emergency. This happened here. My cousin got into a car accident. She's in the hospital here. Uh, She's been declared brain dead. She's got an organ um, donation card, and they are eager to harvest her organs, and I don't know what to do. So I asked a few questions to try to make sure I understood the situation. Then I told him unequivocally, she is not dead. The Scripture defines death as cardiopulmonary. The life is in the blood, says the Scripture. 
and there's the breath of life that oxygenates that blood, but you cannot say the life is in a beating heart. Now, his heart was beating all on its own, but you can't say the life is in the heart because we all know people can have their lives continued for a long time without a heart pumping. You cannot say the life is in the brain. The life is in the blood, according to the Scripture. And anyway, I gave him some other uh, guidance on this whole thing, and he refused to allow them to harvest the organs. And boy, were they mad. They did everything they could to convince him, and when they couldn't convince him to try to circumvent uh, his wishes on this subject, but they couldn't harvest the organs. A week later, she was up and walking around and as healthy as ever. And you can believe that she's got a little bit different perspective on organ donation cards than she used to have. And I can give you story after story of this, of people who were supposedly brain dead, who have given birth to babies, who have recovered completely. Brain death is not a good criteria. And uh, we we need to be, uh, we really need to be on guard. And I've seen... Uh, brain death uh, criteria even being stretched in the hospitals beyond the legal definitions that are given right now, which means there's not even brainstem activity. And there's brainstem activity, and they're still taking these lives, and they're pressuring, pressuring, pressuring the government to change the definition of death to social death, which means if you're in a coma or you're even unconscious, you're socially dead. We ought to be able to harvest those organs. If you're retarded, you are socially dead. Even if you can, kiss and hug your mama. Okay? We are living in a culture of death. It's defining things completely apart from the scriptures of the God uh, of life. And uh, we need the compass of the scripture to safely navigate the waters before us. Most organ transplants involve murdering an individual. Not all of them. Some do not, but medicine is a complex area of ethics. Now, the last point says that death is God's appointment. Verse 6 says, So Saul, his three sons, his armor-bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Now, why do I say it's God's appointment? It's because the evening before, God had prophesied that he and his sons would die in exactly this way, on exactly that day. Okay, let me read the, the scripture from chapter 28. Saul could not live one day longer, one day shorter than God had ordained. God said, or Samuel said, Moreover, the Lord will also deliver Israel with you into the hand of the Philistines, and tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. The Lord will also deliver the army of Israel into the hand of the Philistines. Now, it was the night before, and despite that prophecy, Saul is trying to avoid part of that prophecy from happening when he asked for euthanasia, then when he fell on his sword. Now, you put the two passages together, 2 Samuel 1 and this one, and you come to the conclusion that the Philistines mortally wounded him. He then asked the armor-bearer to kill him. Armor-bearer refuses. He falls on his sword. His sword can't, hasn't killed him. He's trying. He cannot pull it out. He sees this Amalekite, he says, finish me off. The Amalekite says, ooh, you know, this could be a way that I could get wealth and maybe a promotion with David. He takes the loot, he hightails it to David, leaves the Philistine army, and uh, he, he gives the report that, that we read about. 
so. Nothing could stop God's prophecy of the uncircumcised killing him from being fulfilled. It is appointed unto man once to die, says the Scripture. Every one of us. The day and the hour. Now, you might think you have your choice. You don't. How many suicides even fail? Read about this person jumped off of the top of a skyscraper, landed on a car, killed the person in the car, but survived the suicide attempt. It is appointed unto man once to die. Now let me conclude by showing that Christ's death and resurrection gives us perspective that can help us to think differently within our culture of death. In fact, Christ's kingdom is the antithesis of the culture of death. His approach to sex and war produces life and liberty. Christ conquered death, but he still wants us to see death as an enemy and not a friend. We need not fear death, but neither should we embrace it. And sometimes the the world's way of thinking about death is so subtle. It, It can seem spiritual, it can seem good, but it is not, because it's not being defined by the Word of God. Let me give you an example from the life of Whitfield. He was a very godly, reformed evangelist in the 1700s. And I got this from Joseph Belcher's biography. Whitfield had been complaining about how hard the work was and how weary and exhausted he was and how he wished he could just die and go to heaven. And then he talked to the ministers who were gathered at this table, and he asked them if they did not also find comfort in the fact that they would soon be with the Lord for, uh, resting from their labors. They generally agreed, but Whitfield could tell that Father Tennant, an elderly gentleman, absolutely did not agree. He didn't say anything. He was silent, but his silence showed his displeasure. Anyway, the biographer says this. Seeing this, Mr. Whitfield gently tapped tapping him on the knee, said, Well, Brother Tennant, you're the oldest man among us. Do you not rejoice to think that your time is so near at hand when you will be called home? Mr. Tennant bluntly answered, I have no wish about it. Mr. Whitfield pressed him again. Mr. Tennant again answered, No, sir, it is no pleasure at all to me, and if you knew your duty, it would be none to you. I have nothing to do with death. My business is to live as long as I can, as well as I can, until he should think proper to call me home. Mr. Whitfield still urged for an explicit answer to his question, in case the time of death were left to his own choice. Mr. Tennant replied, I have no choice about it. I am God's servant, and I have engaged to do his business as long as he is pleased to continue me therein. But now, brother, let me ask you a question. What do you think I should say if I was to send my servant into a field and find him lounging under a tree and complaining, Master, the sun is very hot and the plowing is hard. I am weary of the work you have appointed me and am overdone with the heat and burden of the day. Do, Master, let me return home and be discharged from this hard service. What should I say? Why, that he was a lazy fellow and that it was his business to do the work that I had appointed to him until I should think fit to call him home. It was a rather blunt answer, but it showed so clearly that death is still our enemy and not to be embraced. And though Christ has conquered death, we should never welcome death as a friend. Instead, our embrace of kingdom life, our lack of fear of death, should make us zealous for the cause of Christ until our dying breath. 1 Corinthians 15 words it this way. 
The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, and in context, it's not destroyed till the second coming, which means death is still our enemy, right? It's not been destroyed yet. He goes on. But this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your string? O oh, Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. And the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. So Christ's death and resurrection really frees us up to be like Jonathan, to live life to the fullest, and when we must face death, to face it with faith and courage. So don't glory in death like some video games do, but don't fear it either. Uh, Jack Benson was a missionary in China, and he uh, one time was stopped by bandits on the road, and they held a gun to his head, took all of his valuables, and they forced him to kneel on the ground and told him that they were going to shoot him. He had no fear. He just looked calm as could be, and that kind of mystified the bandits, and they said, aren't you afraid? We're going to shoot you. Benson replied, afraid of what? I'm just going to meet my God, and they killed him. Not every story ends happily ever after on the horizontal human level. Okay, The story of, of, of Jonathan and Saul, I mean, in a sense, has really got a sad ending. But for Jonathan especially, it was not a sad ending. For the Christian, the story always ends happily ever after. We need not fear death, even if it is our enemy. And here is a poem a fellow missionary wrote based on Jack Benson's death in China, and it's titled, Afraid of What? Afraid of what? Afraid to feel the Spirit's glad release? To pass from pain to perfect peace, the strife and strain of life to cease? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Afraid to see the Savior's face, to hear his welcome and to trace the glory gleaned from wounds of grace? Afraid of that? Afraid of what? Af <clears throat> Afraid to enter into heaven's rest and yet to serve the master blessed from service good to service best? Afraid of that? No. Brothers and sisters, there are really two perspectives on life. There's the Christian perspective and all else. And unfortunately, Saul had embraced a little bit too much of the all else. All else will ultimately produce a culture of death while living and usher you into eternal dying after, after your life. And the Christian perspective brings life to everything, including death. And so I would urge you to embrace the Christian perspective on life and death in a culture of death. Amen. Father, 
This is a sobering passage where every verse deals with death, and yet we do not want to neglect it. We want to think about it and to adjust our lives to live in light of eternity. Help us to realize, Father, that you are sovereign over life and death. We need not fear it. And yet to realize, Father, that because we need not fear it, uh, we can be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that our labors in the Lord are not in vain. And Father, uh, even if it looks in vain to us, we lay hold of that promise that everything we do by faith in you uh, is something that will last for eternity. We bless you for that. In Christ's name, amen.